and, and this is one of the reasons why spiritual trauma is so devastating. And I would argue that it's one of the most uh, comprehensively devastating forms of trauma is because it occurs within the most sacred of spaces. Mm-hmm. Spiritual trauma is the result of entrusting someone with your soul, opening the door to your soul for them so that they can care for it, and then throwing a grenade in it. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. My name is Cy Hoekstra, here uh, alone again, doing this intro for you all. We just have uh, some scheduling difficulties. People are in different places. I am coming to you uh, from Canada, because the border is open again to people who are married to Canadians like me, and I haven't seen my in-laws in a year and a half. But enough about me. What are we doing today? Well, we have another two-part conversation with you. This one is an interview with Kyle J. Howard. For those of you who don't know Kyle... He is a theologian, preacher, and trauma-informed soul care provider specializing uh, in counseling people with spiritual and racial trauma. Don't worry, he will explain what all of that means in the interview. He has a bachelor's in biblical counseling and a master's in historical theology from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And today you will hear us talk to him about his approach to counseling people with spiritual and racial trauma the devastating effects of incompetent and uninformed counseling in many churches, the racial dynamics of interracial marriage counseling, his experience as a black man in a white seminary, how white supremacy can play itself out in the deconstruction movement, and a whole lot more. This is a really good conversation that you should definitely listen to. There's also an article of Kyle's that we mentioned a couple of times uh, throughout the interview. There's a link to that in the show notes in case you want to read it. Okay, as always, the best way to support this show and this company is to go to ktfpress.com and consider becoming a monthly or an annual subscriber. That gets you our newsletter, bonus episodes of this show, writing from the three of us, and it also helps support future book projects as well as this, the free uh, episodes of this show that we're doing every week. If you can't do that, then please do uh, subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you're listening. Leave us a rating and review and follow us at KTF Press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All those things are really important and we really appreciate them. Okay, I'm going to get out of your way now. So here is the first half of our interview with Kyle Howard. Kyle Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to be present with us today, especially after just a long day of emergencies. And we just really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. It's my privilege. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And so we're going to we're going to jump right into it. Um, Just like at the top of your Twitter page, like you lay out a great definition of spiritual racial trauma. You've got a number of clients like that have been hurt by the church. And so can you just briefly define for us, like what's racial trauma, what's spiritual trauma, and how do you talk, and can you talk about your approach to counseling people out of that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, when I when um, think about trauma, uh, one of the ways that I've I've defined trauma in a very in, in very uh, I guess you say layman terms or simplistic terms is uh, the idea that trauma is like haunting pain. Um, like when you think about a haunting, you t- think typically think about a ghost that has taken up residence in a location. Uh, if you watch like scary movies, like Ghostbusters or something like that, the ghost has taken up residence. Somebody moves in, and what happens? That ghost basically terrorizes them. It constantly is knocking mm-hmm. things over, uh, letting them know that hey, I've taken up residence. You're not welcome here. And uh, trauma is like a haunting pain. It's not pain that simply happens in one moment and then goes away, uh, but rather it's pain that haunts an individual uh, throughout their life. 
And uh, when we mm. talk about um, pain, I'm not talking about like a stubbed toe. I'm talking about a kind of, of experience or kind of pain uh, that permeates an enti- a person's entire being. It, it, mm. it affects, it devastates even their um, entire constitution, spiritual, emotional, uh, psychological, even physiological dimensions of who they are. And so we're talking about some a, a form of catastrophic pain uh, that is so severe, so profound that it doesn't just simply last a moment, but it haunts an individual uh, throughout their life. Mm-hmm. And and in one sense, um, all trauma is spiritual trauma. All because uh, we are uh, holistic people, we are both uh, body and spirit. Uh, some people like to break that down into a trichotomy of mind, body, and, and soul, mind, body, and spirit. Uh, but because we are, we are that, uh, we're not just simply physical and we're not just simply spiritual, but we are both. There is no aspect of, of pain, whether it be spiritual or phys- physical, that doesn't impact the other aspect of who we are. And so any kind of physical trauma or physiological trauma, psychological trauma, or emotional trauma is going to have spiritual impact. Uh, likewise, any kind of trauma that if, if impacts someone primarily spiritually is, is going to have physiological impacts, uh, whether mm-hmm. that again. So trauma is, is always comprehensive. But when I when we speak about spiritual trauma, at least in that in the kind of context that you're mentioning it. And what I am talking about is primarily uh, the kind of trauma uh, that is, in, in many ways, has it as has as its foundation uh, some kind of spiritual reality, some kind of spiritual devastation. And so it's mm. it's the kind of trauma that, in some sense, its genesis is not, uh, say, uh, physical abuse outside of the church that simply uh, overflows into spiritual pain, but rather it's. Uh, pain that finds its genesis within some kind of spiritual dimensions or spiritual experience or impact that may mm-hmm. as well, you know, again, overflow in other things. Uh, same mm-hmm. thing when it comes to racial trauma. What we're talking about is the kind of uh, physiological, psychological, spiritual, and emotional haunting pain uh, that finds its roots within uh, racialized experiences. And so we're talking about trauma um, as it relates to um, uh, some kind of racialized pain, if you would, or some kind of pain that is the result of living within a racialized society. Mm. And, And specifically, those who primarily experience that kind of pain are those who are racialized. Uh, within a racialized society. And so racial trauma is is addressing specifically the kind of trauma uh, that is unique to uh, people who live in a racialized society and are experiencing profound haunting pain uh, with uh, as a result of living under racializations. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it, it really does. Thank you so much for, for packing so much <laughs> into that big definition. So I really appreciate it. Can you talk about um, like your approach to counseling people out of it? Like you laid out that definition, like how do you enter into it and how do you invite people to liberation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would hold to the view, as I mentioned before, and, and, I, and I stress this because I think that often the church uh, has failed here. I think that uh, the uh, the primary posture of the church when it comes to counseling or soul care has been uh, kind of a Gnosticism light. And when I say a Gnosticism light, what I mean by that is that when you think about Gnosticism, the ancient heresy or ancient ideology of Gnosticism, which the early church fought against, it was this idea that there was some form of secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge had to deal with the spiritual realm. 
and in that the spiritual realm was seen as something that was sacred, something that was holy, while the physical realm was something that was seen as being negative and something that was unhealthy or not good. And so the goal of Gnosticism was for people to ex excel and, and rise within spiritual awareness and spiritual identity and ultimately leave their physical realm apart. And so again, Jesus was seen as being just simply a spiritual entity rather than being both a the son of God incarnate. And so when it comes to counseling and soul care, there's this, there's often an overemphasis on the spiritual needs at the expense of the physical needs uh, that are necessary when it comes to actual comprehensive care. And so again, mm -hmm. the church will uh, often prioritize uh, again, what they'll call, say, soul care or uh, biblical counseling and pe submitting, helping people submit to the word of God, however you want to phrase it. But they will do it at the expense of the various psychological, physiological, emotional uh, needs that a person has in order to have comprehensive flourishing. And mm. so in my role as a soul care provider, as someone who also believes that we, we best serve people when we remain in our lane and excel in the lane that we are in. Um, my my role is to help people process through, uh, especially if doing the trauma dynamics, is helping people process through uh, di complex dynamics of trauma in a way that is spiritually healthy, in a way that that is a in some sense a bomb to the soul and allows them to uh, to heal spiritually. But I also fully recognize the need for comprehensive care. And so the most ideal situation is for someone to be receiving uh, mental health care um, as well as spiritual health care so that they are getting comprehensive care uh, for their own personal human flourishing. And so what I do in, in my realm, in my ward is, again, I, I often partner with, uh, with clinical therapists or licensed counselors, um, and we work together in a partnership to make sure that someone's getting comprehensive care. You know, I will care for the spiritual dimensions of, the, of who they are and helping them process things as it relates to faith and as it relates to spirituality, while, uh, again, a, a clinical therapist will help them process things related to uh, psychological flourishing. And as a trauma-informed soul care provider, my goal is to provide that care in a way that doesn't hinder, just does not hinder their psychological care, but rather uh, aids it and rather help, it comes alongside it for that, again, for that comprehensive flourishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you, um, just because I think some people have either maybe never heard the term or have heard it but don't know what it means, could you just explain uh, trauma-informed, what that means? Yeah, it, it, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. <laughs> uh, when when I'm using the term trauma-informed, what I mean is that they have a, a person who has an heavily invested in becoming aware of the dynamics of of, of trauma. Let me, let me take a step back. Say, have become comprehensively aware of the various dynamics related to trauma and, 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 and the, the needs that come with that. And not only that, but also navigating uh, the dynamics of trauma in a way that is actually healthy and productive rather than uh, compounding that trauma. Uh, mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, you could, I, I often most of the counselees that I deal with now are people who have been counseled uh, by uh, biblical counselors in the church. Uh, but their lack of being trauma informed has led these counselors or pastors uh, to engage with these people in ways that actually compounds the trauma or compounds the pain. Uh, whether it's somebody who, say, is clinically depressed, who ends up coming away from counseling even more clinically depressed because they were told by their pastor or counselor that they just need to um, stop complaining and just, you know, uh, need to repent 
uh, for being depressed or, you know, all the different things that could be said. Mm. Someone who's trauma informed is going to understand the complexity of depression or the complexity involved in dynamics of anxiety. And instead of relegating everything over to just being some to sin issues or spiritual issues, they're going to recognize that complexity and seek to navigate care in a way where they're not compounding the anxiety, compounding the depression or compounding the trauma. And so, again, so trauma, being trauma informed to me uh, speaks to both being informed about the complex, complex dynamics of trauma, as well as being informed of how best to navigate um, spaces where there is trauma present in a way that actually leads to greater health and flourishing rather than uh, leading to uh, greater pain. Yeah, that's so helpful how you how you unpack that and, and explain that. Kyle, and it, it just reminds me, I, I shared on one of our previous episodes about a, a childhood trauma that I experienced. And I'm so grateful that after that happened, I had a, a Christian therapist who worked with me and actually took me through EMDR. Um, and at the time we called it tapping therapy, but um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I'm so grateful that she had the wisdom to both have it be informed. It was a process that was very much informed by our shared faith, but at the same time, it, she was taking advantage of clinical approaches to PTSD in children. And, and just incorporating that, I think, was so important to my ability to, to process through what I had experienced as a child. So that's so fantastic, all that you bring to that. And yeah. just switching gears a little bit to another aspect of, of your work that we definitely want to touch on in this podcast. You also do couples counseling and you have written before about your specific approach to counseling interracial marriages that take seriously the racial dimension of a marriage. And coincidentally, all three of us are in interracial marriages. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all four of us because my wife is Vietnamese. So it's all four of us. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So <laughs> So could you um, just talk us through, explain your approach to talking with couple, couples about their racial differences? And is there something in particular that interracial couples don't expect going into their marriages? Yeah, absolutely. That's that, that's a, that's a great question, and um, you know, all of these have actually been great questions, which is always my favorite kind of podcast interviews when the when when good questions are being asked. I've I've had interviews, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so when it comes, so let, let me do this. Let me give you an illustration, and then from I'll build from that illustration. Okay. So um, a while back, I did counseling. Um, I was kind of thrust into a counseling situation where someone who I knew, uh, they were a friend, but it was more of a casual friend, kind of reached out to me to let me know that they were getting a divorce. And they were an interracial couple. And they, he reached out to me, let me know he was getting a divorce. And I, I reached back and said, hey, I know we don't know each other too well, but you know, the, I, interracial marriage counseling is something that I specialize in. You know, do you guys want to talk? If there's any hope, you know, I'm happy to walk alongside you guys. In this, and now they've spent they spent tons of money. Uh, they've been to numerous therapists and counselors and biblical counselors and pastors, all trying to work through things, and none of it was helpful. I'm talking like seven years of counseling and therapy, and none of it was helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, all of it actually just made things worse. And uh, by God's grace, I don't know why, but they after all that they've been through, they decided that they'd go ahead and try one more time. So they met with me, and uh, and we began talking and trying to you know process through things. And within within one hour, there was so much progress that made that it ultimately led to hope and them wanting to do, you know, meet more. But this is what happened. So um, the spouse was from Central America mm -hmm. and uh, the the man was uh, was white. And uh, in counseling, one of the things that kept coming up was that they would have communication problems. Mm 
And whenever they would try to communicate or if one of them was offended and they try to communicate, it would always just go further downhill. And so they would go to counseling. And at the end of the counseling, they always the counselors always came to the same conclusion. The problem was that the spouse just wouldn't submit to her husband, that if she wasn't oh. if she didn't have this fiery personality, if she wasn't so, uh, yeah. you know, characteristically, uh, she's very, you know, very animated, very like, you know, has that, that fiery energy and everything else that that was the problem. And if she would curb that, basically, if she would, if she would uh, whitewash her cultural, her cultural expressions, then they wouldn't have these issues. And he was like, yo, I know I'm the problem when it comes to, I know I'm the problem when it comes to communication. I just don't know why I'm the problem. So when I go to these counselors, now they keep telling me is my wife's the problem. I know it's off, you know, but within that counseling, what ended up coming out was a couple of things. One was that um, because English was her second language. When he would say, make comments like use euphemisms and make and use illustrations certain, in certain words, she took everything literally, while he was speaking in, mm. in categories that were more figurative in speech. And so, because she was interpreting everything literally, whenever he spoke, she would she would be actually be insulted by things he said, not realizing that he was actually complimenting her or trying to affirm her, and then vice versa mm. was happening. And, and and so and then furthermore, after that, it was more dynamics related to just, again, communication, where when she would get super animated, super energized, he would he would because he's somewhat was somewhat of a calm and collected and kind of more chill kind of dude. He would assume that she was being aggressive, that she was angry. And really, she's like, no, I'm not angry. I'm just being passionate. Mm-hmm. So long story short. Several years of counseling, um, this 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 sister had to deal with people saying that she's a problem and that her cultural expressions are a problem. And that she needed to whitewash herself in order to make a marriage successful. And he was being told that whiteness is white and that he, essentially that he should have married a white woman. And the reason why he's having all these problems in his marriage is because he didn't marry a woman who is white. And so there was there was a colonizing, colonizing of the actual uh, marital relation that was happening in that, which mm-hmm. within just an hour of time of someone who was culturally aware about the way in which different com- uh, cultural communities uh, communicate was able to basically break through that and show, hey, this is some of the primary issues that you're having. Mm-hmm. And so I, I say that as an illustration to say that one of the things that often happens within an interracial marriage counseling is that the people who are doing the counseling don't don't understand the un- the nuances and the uniqueness of various cultural expressions, and they all have a box, and they try to put people into these boxes. And typically, because most uh, white training centers, when it comes to clinical therapy or white or, or churches, say white evangelical churches, they're all grounded on on white principles and white ideologies or paradigms. And so the box that they try to fit everyone into is a white box, mm-hmm. a cultural box. And, and so when it comes to interracial marriage counseling, you know, for my approach, uh, it's a it's a culturally aware approach of recognizing now uh, the various different cultural dynamics and different cultural expressions and helping uh, married couples come to appreciate and even champion those cultural differences rather than seeing them as obstacles. And I think one of the things that interracial marriage couples do is that they when they go, they they take on a colorblind approach to marriage. Where it's kind of like we're going to um, leave our culture at the door, and we're going to become just, uh, and then be- and get married. But what it often happens, especially if you're talking about white and then something else, is that whiteness becomes the paradigm of the marriage, 
where the, the other culture has to leave their culture at the door and they have to acquiesce or they have to conform to white cultural paradigms and then that's just considered normal. And so mm-hmm. instead of a, instead of interracial marriage couples uh, being able and willing to see the beauty and glory and all the different cultural expressions and diversity and all those kinds of things, and out of difference, find unity out of the differences, or in, even in the midst of difference, still see the beauty of those differences and find unity in the beauty of that diversity, they end up, they end up trying to sucking out all the differences and then thinking that, okay, this means that there's racial harmony or ethnic harmony within our marriage. But really all they did was just cleanse it of any kind of diversity or ethnic expression. And so I, I think one of the biggest challenges that a lot of couples have is they don't know how to faithfully um, embrace one another's cultural expressions and those kinds of things and and maybe even be scared of them at times and so they try to bypass them and say basically our love is stronger than our ethnic diversity and so we're just going to cling to love and so it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of a romantic it's kind of a romanticized thing mm-hmm. uh and i would say that within my 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 soul care with when it comes to interracial marriage what i try to do is i help couples um, if, there, if there's already damage that's been done, then it's a matter of restorative work of helping people kind of, of heal those those diversity wounds. And, and, and then after that, helping them to uh, look at each other's diversity, see some see that as something that's worthy of glory and beauty and something that should be championed and uh, both basically become a transcultural marriage rather than just simply mm. an interracial marriage. There's a radical difference between an interracial marriage, which just means two different ethnicities who are married, versus a transcultural marriage where you have two people from different cultures coming together as one. And in that unity, you see that cultural diversity, which mm-hmm. I think glorifies God because it represents the church. Wow. And if I could just ask a follow-up question, um, where have you been able to find good resources for that? Or do you feel like you've kind of had to just... Make your own resources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I'll be honest with you, when when my husband and I first got married, and this continues to the to this day, I feel like it's hard for me to find good books on marriage that I don't feel like are just written from that perspective of, like you said, the status quo being subtly like the white model paradigm. I've, I honestly, I've had to build. I ha- I've had to more or less create my own uh, right. resources, my own kind of curriculums, my own kind of work because, kind of as you you said, um, there's there is a severe lack um, regarding these things. Even within yeah. the secular arena, there's a severe lack because the secular arena takes on a, a, a largely a colorblind approach to these things as well. And as a biblical theologian, uh, my my views on these things are deeply rooted in Scripture. I mean, the Apostle Paul talks about how marriage is supposed to reflect Christ in the church. And I think that a transcultural marriage uh, does reflect that in a, prof- in, a, in, a, in a profound way, just mm-hmm. like a healthy transcultural church would. And so I, I think that so I root these things within my biblical theology, my biblical and historical theology. And so uh, but I also you know, received my degrees from a white evangelical institution where none of these things are talked about, not even trauma isn't even talked about. And so there, I, I've had to do a lot of work on my end in regards to uh, the study of history, the study of racial history, the study of you know sociology, just all these different fields in order to kind of bring it all together in a way that kind of weds biblical and historical and systematic theology towards uh, practical care and, 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 and flourishing and marital flourishing and kind of bring all that together myself. 
Yeah, I wish yeah. there was more resources, uh, but that goes with all of my work. When it comes to spiritual trauma, when it comes to racial trauma, especially, um, though there are more secular resources on that front, but by and large, especially as a biblical theologian, there's been a lot of building from the ground up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I read something of yours once, Kyle, where you talked about counseling that you were doing, I think with a white man and a black woman where you sat down and you asked the white man point blank who he thought was more feminine, uh, mm-hmm. Beyonce or Taylor Swift, I think were your examples. Yeah. It's uh, an article that I, I wrote when the church colonizes femininity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, that he's, he's going in. This is no joke. This is a serious thing mm-hmm. that he's doing. So I, I appreciate the directness with which you're attacking those idols and those realities. Um, Actually, you just talked about what I wanted to ask you about next, which was, you know, that you got your your MDiv from a white seminary. And you've said that working as a a black man in a white seminary, you had to basically do enough studying where you could have earned two separate degrees. Um, Why is that? What do you what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah. So within a white evangelical institution, we we are. The goal, so like, so I have an MA um, in theology, historical theology was my concentration. And, uh, but when it comes to a master's of divinity and MA, PhD within those spaces, the goal of that is ultimately to master white theology, white Western theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no engagement with the black church tradition. There's no engagement with the Korean church tradition or various Hispanic church traditions or Asian church traditions. You're mastering white the- uh, Western theology, whether you were talking about the reformers, uh, whether we're talking about even the patristics for that matter. As My field was North African patristics with, again, North Africa. But even mm-hmm. then, most of those men are whitewashed despite being from Africa. And so there's, there's a whitewashing of theology and then a whitewashing in regards to theological formulation. Um, within those spaces. And so what ends up happening, if you're a minority, a couple of things happen. One, if you fully commit to just that space, then when you get out of it, you are inept to, to minister in any other space other than white spaces. And uh, and if you're going to minister in white spaces, there's going to be a required assimilation take place. And so yeah. what I have seen is I have seen minority men um, and, and women, but mostly men, who go to seminary, they master the work there, they get their degrees, and, and they can't get ex- they don't get any ministry positions within white church spaces because they're minorities, and they're maybe even unassimilated minorities for the most part. And then they but they try to go back into their, their own communities and they're not welcome there either because their theology has basically been baptized in whiteness. And so mm-hmm. they're not trusted or accepted within those spaces, and they're not really trusted and respected within the um uh, within other spaces as well, and so they and they f- basically find themselves in a the awkward situation of not being able to find a job or find employment without compromise. Mm. And so, for for an unassimilated minority who does the, a degree with at a white institution, if they want to be able to serve in spaces beyond white spaces, there is a necessity for them to uh, compound their workload with work from other spaces. Right. And so, like for me, for example, if if I wanted to be able to minister in any space, then I did not just have to master white theology, but I had to be able to master global theology. I needed to be able to st- I needed to study the church abroad. I needed to be able to study um, uh, Latin theology, Black theology, um, Native American, Indigenous uh, theolo- theologies, um, and just uh, just across that spectrum. 
And so there's there's at at minimum twice as much work, maybe even more, that goes into uh, studying and seeking to master um, other perspectives and other and other writings beyond what you're expected to do for your degree program. If you're going to actually have a robust theological framework beyond being basically assimilated into just simply white theology, and it's not just me. I've talked to a decent amount of uh, minority seminarians who come out of white evangelical spaces who find themselves in the same same boat, where it's like, yo, when I'm when I was done doing my reading and, and writing my papers for my class, I then had to open up books uh, written by black theologians or other theologians in order to in order so that I could apply what I just learned from this white theology. I could filter that in uh, to to how would this apply to my own content, cultural context? If I could take a step back real quick, mm-hmm. uh, because th- there, there is a very interesting intersection here between uh, what I just said about the seminary culture and, mm-hmm. and, and ministry and the interracial marriage culture. And it's a very it's a very tough line to, to, to walk that is easy to get in trouble if I fall off on either side, but I still want to address it. <laughs> but uh, so like that article that I wrote, when the church colonizes femininity that you mentioned, it's, it's yeah. on my website. And um, mm-hmm. in that article, I talk about how there's a paradigm uh, of what is a godly woman. And the paradigm basically looks like a white Southern antebellum woman that most minorities don't measure up to. And also even there are white women who don't measure up to that. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know, that this whole concept of this gentle, meek, soft spoken, you know, um, you know, all those kinds of things. There's plenty of white women out there that don't match that as well, who are more, you know, outgoing and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, but what ends up happening in seminaries um, and in ministry, especially within white evangelical spaces, is that minority men are, are, are expected uh, to um, to marry or p- pursue and marry women that fit that mold. Mm-hmm. And and when they do and and them them pursuing that becomes a parameter to test their own godliness and their own faithfulness. So, so not only women being forced to conform, but men are forced to marry uh, specific women who fit a certain kind of paradigm. Mm-hmm. One of the most difficult, one of the most challenging, difficult maybe not the word, the most challenging or or tragic even uh, counseling dynamics that I have been to been been involved with is helping interracial married couples and I'll, and I'll get this um, let me see if I can say this in a in a in a clear way the husband is a minority black or brown minority and they pursued their white wife uh primarily because she fit the paradigm that they would need in order to be accepted into ministry in that space <laughs> And yeah. as they begin decolonizing their faith and deconstructing their the own you know toxicity of their faith and everything else, as a even as a couple, they come to terms with the fact that though they love each other, that the foundations for their relationship was him trying to pers- it was him pursuing her because by having her he would be seen as safe. Hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you can see this often when you think about even white evangelical culture. There's a reason why uh, most of the men uh, who are most of the black men who have platforms within that space have white wives. Um, they're not typically black men married to black women or black men married to other women of color. And so th- 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 doing soul care and marriage, interracial marriage counseling in a situation of trying to heal the wound of a wife who uh, has to process that 
that her husband pursued her, you know, for those reasons. And he trying to pursue the fact that he pursued his wife for those kinds of reasons. And now they're married and, you know, all the different complexity with that. I'm, I'm sure that that is extremely challenging. And so as much as I say I'm I'm all for interracial marriage, I'm the byproduct of interracial black and white marriage. My grandfather and paternal grandfather and, and grandmother uh, got married before loving. And so mm. if they traveled south of Kentucky, they would have both been lynched. And so mm. I'm thankful for interracial marriage. What I'm not thankful for is when uh, interracial marriage is weaponized, when sisters in Christ, uh, white sisters in Christ are used as a, a as a test to determine the safety of a black man for ministry, hmm. you know, and, and does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? Yeah. Oh yeah. Is that, yeah. Is what yeah. I'm saying is what I'm saying making sense or do I sound like I'm, I'm tripping? No, I, <laughs> no I, can, it, I can totally see a situation where you, you have uh, a, a woman who doesn't fit the paradigm of the gentle, meek and mild uh, white woman that being seen as a problem. Like you, like the patriarchal like understanding of how marriage is supposed to work I, I can see the man being blamed for like not having his wife under control if she's not like that mm-hmm. right one yeah 100 percent yeah and so and and of course the people who who also impacted this are the minority women in the church who right. uh, who are who's sitting there like yo we're, we're never going to get married as long as we're in this this culture and in this space because we are seen um, either we are exoticized uh, uh, by white men or by other minority men pursuing us would actually be a mark against them if they desire ministry because because we don't fit that paradigm. It gets mm-hmm. it gets messy fast. But my, my main point in that is that when it comes to interracial marriage counseling, especially within white evangelical spaces, even when it comes to counseling leaders and all those, it gets it gets messy so fast because of how much. Um, racializations play a role, but everyone wants to deny that they're actually playing any kind of role whatsoever. And mm-hmm. so instead of actually being able to engage and care and help and process these things so that we can actually have some form of ethnic harmony as we navigate all these different things, no one wants to talk about the things and all it is doing is hurting people and mm-hmm. causing uh, greater uh, devastation down the road when it comes to things like uh, marriage counseling you know, and other things like that. So like I, my, my wife is Chinese and Korean and one of the most, I felt insulted when she said this, but she goes, you know, Jonathan, like you, me, me and my, uh, my brother, my brother's a theologian. We drive whiteness like a stick shift. Like we know how to shift in the South and code switch and like use all the tools to get people to do what we want them to do because we've been, we've been like that since we were children. And he said, um, Jonathan, Priscilla said, Jonathan, you need to stop trying to make me like you, right? Mm-hmm. And I said to her, "You, you mean like, uh, like, like I'm a, I'm cultured in this like Western way, and I'm trying to Westernize you. I'm trying to colonize you." And she said, "Well, yeah." Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, "Well, we don't curse on this podcast," but I was like, <laughs> and so then I started, you know, to unpack this this reality of like, if I don't decolonize my own soul, I'm going to do that to my wife and children. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so something I'm wondering is, is there a place or places where you were like, okay, my marriage is colonized. I need to decolonize it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that, that, yeah, that's tech. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to jump on that so quickly with the, oh my God, yes. But, <laughs> 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 but, 
but uh, so so here's the thing, okay? And this speaks to everything that we're talking about, uh, especially counseling and soul care. Right. In my opinion, and, and this is one of the reasons why spiritual trauma is so devastating, and I would argue that it's one of the most uh, comprehensively devastating forms of trauma, is because it occurs within the most sacred of spaces. Mm-hmm. Spiritual trauma is the result of entrusting someone with your soul opening the door to your soul for them so that they can care for it and them throwing a grenade in it and blowing it up. And so it's, it, it, and so you have by no means seeking to undermine or downplay the dynamics or the devastation of physical abuse and all these other kinds of things. As I mentioned before, physical abuse is spiritual abuse. It has spiritual impact, but when it comes to the dynamics that happens like in a church or in a sacred setting or a sacred space, that that's, that's why the kind of abuse that happens when it comes to like, say, domestic abuse or uh, parental abuse and all those kinds of things is because there is a deeper intimate trust factor that's being, portray- being portrayed in these kinds of things. So in counseling, one of the reasons why it's so devastating when, pe- when counselors or pastors get it wrong or not trauma-informed or not uh, culturally aware is because they are portraying sacred space when they fail there. And, and because uh, there's, uh, the counseling context is a very, very intimate space. The counseling room is a very, very mm. intimate space. It's, it's you and another person or maybe you and that other person and, and say accountability partner. And you guys are meeting and you're talking about things that are very, very deep to that individual. And again, they're opening their soul to you. And so you, you got to treat that like sacred space. Mm. Marriage is another one of those things. It's one of the it's it's one of the most intimate relationships, a a marriage, and the kind of conversations, the kind of uh, relational dynamics that happen in a marriage. You know, all the trust guards are essentially brought down, and a, that other person, that spouse, has in many ways full access to every part of you. And so, if that level of sacred trust is betrayed through a member of that relationship. Uh, using that sacred trust intentionally or unintentionally to essentially conform the their spouse into an image of themselves mm. that is a profound betrayal. If there is a cleansing of, of cultural identity in marriage and, a, and an attempt to refashion cultural identity after that spouse's own likeness, whether it be, say, whiteness, then that, that, that can be profoundly devastating. And so I would say that I think that it, it is within sacred spaces where the most devastating expressions of colonization uh, actually occur. Whether we're talking about the sacredness of a church space, whether we're talking about the sacredness of a marital space, or uh, something of that nature. And so I, I think that th- that's one of the reasons why these are conversations that have to happen and why there's there's a need for soul care within these these kind of conversations because – um, when they go bad, they go really, really bad. The kind yeah. of dem- the devastation that they can cause can be catastrophic in many ways, beyond in mm. many ways, almost beyond repair. Um, now, as a Christian theologian, I believe Jesus is risen from the dead, so there's always hope for restoration and reconciliation. But there can be some profound devastation when these things are not understood, and mm. a spouse. Um, uses the sacredness of marital trust, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to colonize their their wife, or vice versa. Again, a wife could do it to a husband as well. Lord have mercy, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that um, we also talk about a lot, and we've we've pressed, we've leaned into this a little bit about like leaving colonized faith, and 
you've made a point specifically to people who grew up in white church contexts that leaving conservative white churches for white mainline churches can be a form of white supremacy. So could you unpack a little bit of that? Yeah. What I, well, the reason for that is what often happens is you do have, and this happens within the whole um, deconstructing your faith movement that's happening right now, which um, in some mm-hmm. ways, you know, mad respect, you know, do, you know, I, I do that. It was part of my work is helping people deconstruct and rebuild. But within that movement, there are white liberals, white progressives who have kind of co-opted it and are using it as a form of, of their own form of colonization. And, and I, I get this all the time. I, I can't tell you how many times that there's been white liberals who've reached out to me as friends and been like super supportive. We love the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Yada, yada, yada. And then the moment I say something they disagree with, but is it within accord with the black church tradition, I become an enemy and the language becomes verbally abusive. But again, what ends up happening is you have white conservatism or white fun- fundamentalism. And then you have white liberalism, which is basically the the, the fruit of German liberalism, uh, which included higher criticism, uh, questioning the authority of scripture and the the efficacy and sufficiency of scripture and all those kinds of things. White German liberalism comes to the West, comes to America, and then you got you know um, a kind of a white progressive uh, Christianity, and then even white liberal Christianity, and then over here you have the white fundamentalists, and you have white people who are just bounced from one to the other, so they. In some sense, if you say that conservatism, think about the spectrum here. Uh, conservative, white conservatism or white fundamentalism is California, all right? And then you have German liberalism is um, Washington, D.C., okay? They will fly over uh, the black church tradition, the uh, Hispanic church tradition, indigenous church traditions, uh, various Asian church traditions, all the way over to D.C., and they, they won't even look at anything else. And so they go from one to the other because their paradigm for um, for effectiveness or for truth or for anything that is valid has to be white. They can't learn from black or brown, but by, by from BIPOC, they it has to they they can only submit themselves to whiteness and white ideologies. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to be on the white side of that that spectrum or the left side of the spectrum. And so they're still staying within the realm of white supremacy, even though they're talking about decolonizing or deconstructing. The only difference is that they've gone from, again, white fundamentalism to white liberalism. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I would say, and, and, and even experientially, is that I encounter just as much racism and, and attempts at uh, theological colonization from white progressives and white liberals as I did from white evangelicals and white fundamentalists. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have an experiential difference between the two as it relates to me. Um, and and in conversations that I've had with other minorities, they would basically echo what I just said. And yeah. and to to which my response would be, I think that white Christians who are seeking to deconstruct and maybe rebuild, they should be willing to humble themselves and actually seek to learn uh, from various uh, church cultures that aren't rooted in whiteness. And be willing to learn from them and not have to be centered in the conversation or lead the conversation. Same thing is happening when it comes to ethnic reconciliation conversations. Um, mm. Ethnic reconciliation movement in the church was doomed to fail the moment that white leaders who knew absolutely nothing about ethnic reconciliation decided that <laughs> they must be the ones who lead the way. Mm. 
Right. And and so when all these churches, instead of bringing in people, instead of looking to the black church tradition, studying the black church tradition or other traditions, they said, hey, we're going to be an ethnic reconciliation movement and we're going to write the books and we're going to be the ones who do the conferences and we're going to be the ones to lead the way in ethnic reconciliation and ethnic unity, despite the fact that we were the ones that were pro-Jim Quo and, and, our found, and our ancestors were those who were pro-slavery. Right. Um, it, it made no sense. It required profound audacity. And the food of it now is this whole uh, critical race theory crisis in the midst of a rampant upticking in white nationalism. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I think at the end of the day, which if there was ever to be any kind of movement or any kind of change, it would require uh, the white church to actually humbly submit to learning uh, from other church traditions. But again, what you ultimately end up having is white people just bouncing from different white expressions of faith. I appreciate that. When I, I There was like a tweet thread you wrote on that maybe like four or five years ago, which was the moment I hit the follow button on your account. Oh, wow. You, you old school. You MVP, yo. <laughs> oh, well, I, I only found it because Jonathan retweeted it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thankful that I haven't lost Shaw yet. Thanks for not blocking me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Kyle on Twitter at Kyle James Howard. You can also go to his website, kylejhoward.com. And on that website, there is a link that says support. And I think you should all uh, very much consider clicking it and helping Kyle out a little bit. The, the um, counseling that he does, he provides largely for free to his clients and he relies on donations from people like you. So please do consider that. Again, it's kylejhoward.com. Do not type www. It won't work if you do that. I tried it. kylejhoward.com. Also, please consider going to ktfpress.com and becoming a monthly or annual subscriber. We really appreciate it if you would. Follow us at KTF Press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Shake the Dust, um, a podcast of KTF Press. Oh no, wait, sorry, Jonathan, oh. we don't have to do the whole intro. You can just oh, <laughs> dang it, you're right. We just we discovered that. And Kyle Harp, oh my gosh, then I'm gonna mess up your name. Um, Kyle Howard, thank Look, you. I, so I can't much. deal with non-professionals. I gotta go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>